Hi, I'm Sana Magani. And I'm Philip Nevels. And we're part of Catalyst Ed's post-secondary team. Catalyst Ed is a national nonprofit organization working toward more equitable educational outcomes for students and young people in K-12 and post-secondary education. To learn more about Catalyst Ed and our work, you can go to www.catalyst-ed.org. We're thankful to Leela and Emeka for giving us space on their podcast, Just a Thought. This special series is designed to share the innovative and important work our post-secondary partners are leading on colleges and universities across the country. In this special series, six episodes to be exact, you will get the opportunity to hear from some wonderful organizations in the post-secondary space. Advising Success Network, Achieving the Dream, United Negro College Fund, the Gardner Institute, Complete College America, and MDRC. Each episode will highlight how these organizations and their respective campus partners are tackling equity in one of the following areas, student support services, advising pathways, institutional policy, teaching and instruction, financial aid policy, and campus culture. You'll hear from our partners, campus leaders, and students on why these topics matter, why you should care, and how they are working together to address gaps in equity. We hope you follow along for this six episode journey. This project is supported by Catalyst Ed, Tides, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Just a Thought. We have some brilliant people today, and we got we got two, two tenured faculty members who happen to be mm-hmm. of African descent. So I wanted this be a shout out to them right now. We're going to introduce ourselves. We got a brilliant student on the call as well. I'm going to let her just introduce herself. She out here doing neuroscience. She touching minds literally and figuratively. <laughs> but with that, my name is Dr. Chukwu Emeka. You can go on by Emeka for short. I am an assistant professor at St. Cloud State University, which is a regional institution in Minnesota. And my name is Dr. Leela Ethel Ellis Nelson. I'm in Chicago, Illinois, teaching at Roosevelt University, in addition to co-owning Changing Perspectives, which is a JEDI or Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity consulting firm, also based in the Chicago area. I go by Leela. I'm not that fancy. And I'll turn it over to Liz Mylene. Hi, I'm Liz Mylene, and I am a post-bac student at Brown University uh, in their neuroscience department. I am Brian Dewsbury. I am an associate professor at Florida International University, which is Miami, Florida. Um, I'm also the associate director of STEM Transformation Institute, which is um, encompasses a few STEM departments as well. Hi, hello. I'm Monica Flippen Wynn. I'm uh, at the. Uh, I'm a senior assistant vice president at the Gardner Institute. I am also an adjunct faculty at Jackson State University. Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, all right. So mm-hmm. we got we, we got somebody in MIA with beautiful weather and beaches all the time, and then we got somebody at Jackson State with a. Uh, is that with Coach Prime? Yeah, that is with you. Yeah, 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 that is. That is Coach Prime, <laughs> Coach, Coach Prime down there doing this thing. All right, all right. So we have we we all start with our first question. We actually want you all to kind of um, answer this question, um, and then we'll get into the overarching goal of. Are the construct for this actual podcast. How do you explain what you do to your mama, your cousin, and your auntie? And we're gonna start, we're gonna do reverse order this time. We're gonna start with uh Dr. Monica Flipping. How do you explain what you do to your mama, your cousin, and your auntie? 
you know, they always ask me, uh, you know, what they say is you don't do anything. I don't ever see who you are. Uh, you know, and so um, I tell them uh, that I help uh, future generations uh, make good on the promise. All right. All right. All right. All right. I love that. I love that. And uh, Brian, how would you explain what you do to your mama, your cousin, your auntie, and your uh, so I'm actually going to take your question and, and make it a little bit meta because your question sort of assumes that um, all of those individuals actually ask what I do. Um, and and this, is not, this is not to be dismissive of them, but uh, you know, what I didn't mention in my introduction is I was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. So I'm from the Caribbean. I came to the U.S. for college as a 19-year-old. As a and um, for many of my, um, my, my cousins and, um, and extended family, just the fact that I'm I'm a professor is enough. They don't actually need any more additional details. So I mean, very few people sit and ask me. So what do you do on a Monday at eight a.m. You know, till five? Mm-hmm. What do you write? And so um, if it if and if it does come up, um, what I say is, you know, I work on making education a space about equality and equity, right? And that that kind of encapsulates it in, in general. But I think it's important for your audience to understand that, you know, if you're a first-generation college student um, or if you do come from families where this is sort of not a normal level of capital, not everybody's asking the details. Just the fact that you got there, got to the mountaintop, mm-hmm, <laughs> the mm-hmm. that this is one, right, is, is enough information. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, really, I really appreciate that and for the clarification. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's something because I know my dad is from straight up Nigeria. And when I tell him I'm a professor, the first question he asked me, are you on a tenure track? I'm like, how do you even know that? Like, you're an engineer. <laughs> anyway. So Liz Miley, how would you explain to your cousin, your mommy, auntie, and what you do? I, I kind of, I share kind of a similar sentiment with Brian in, in the fact that um, they, I can't say my, my family asked often um, because I, I, so I work in a lab and what they're familiar with is a medical doctor and mm-hmm. and a lawyer and um and that's kind of it and and so um what i've started doing is that so i do neuroscience right and what i started doing is saying um well i study the brain and they say oh okay well that's psychology you want to be a, a therapist you want to something like that and then i say no i study it as an organ i study the brain as an organ mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and Lately, I've been kind of adding on to that and and saying, yeah, well, I, I work in a lab, but not to be, I don't want to work with people. Like, I, I don't want to do medicine. Um, I want to give the medical doctors more information uh, for them to work with so they can treat people. Um, and that's kind of how I've been going about it. Okay, that's, that's great. So let's let's transition. So for those who don't know, today's actual episode is about teaching and instruction. That we have that's why we have wonderful people, some experts in some great areas. But we want to kind of talk about how do we get more Liz Mylene's and more Brian's and more Dr. Monica Flipper Wins and Chiquette Mecca's and, and Leela. So without further ado, mm-hmm. I'm gonna get into that first part. 
Yeah. So the big thing is getting into the program for one, right? But once you've gotten there, you really have to figure out how to find your way. And that's something I noticed that's been really difficult for a lot of folks trying to transition into my field, which is the field of clinical psychology specifically. Um, And I teach across our bachelor's, our master's, and our doctoral program. But we don't have a lot of those early professional development, foundational type courses that allow folks to really get used to what will the culture be like and how can I be my most authentic self while trying to figure out some of those pieces. So with that type of stuff in mind, what do you see the role of course placement, developmental courses or developmental education and some of more of those gateway courses in achieving more equal outcomes or equitable outcomes for students? And if you have any of examples of courses that you've seen work really well, that would be helpful and ones that are pretty crappy that could be better, that would be helpful too. You know, maybe you'll sense a theme here, but again, I'll take a few steps back and trouble the notion of it even needing to be a gateway course. And from the moment that 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 type of language is adopted, this is not a critique of you. I think this is just in general higher ed and the data bears out that some of these courses tend to be gateway courses. But I think as, as somebody who taught or teaches an intro bio course, one of those courses that falls squarely into that bracket. Going into that room, going into that semester, not thinking of this as something that requires circumventing, that requires um, you know, troubleshooting, that requires students to kind of figure out in order for them to be successful, that, that actually has to be the first step, right? Because the, the mindset and the mentality with which you design that course is going to determine everything, right? From how you structure assessments from what you teach, from how you engage with students. And oh, by the way, how you engage with students is actually the most important part of that. We, we honestly, Leila, don't have enough time in this podcast to really fully answer that last part about how you go about making it fully equitable because there's a whole, and you I'm sure would know of this perhaps more than most because of your background. Um, there's a whole lot of scholarship in psychology and sociology that I think people who are teaching these kinds of courses need to be a bit more familiar with mm-hmm. before they start getting at the how many quizzes I should have and how many exams okay. I should have and things like that. So, so I'll, I'll stop stop it there. But you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to crack here, right? So, I, I, listen, I'm here if you want to go there. I have no problem. I ain't never going to stop the shine. Like I said, the one thing I've always believed in truly is sometimes it's really hard for our admin to hear the truth. But they also don't invite opportunities for the truth. They invite a, pers- a, a version of the truth that already sits well with their own confirmation bias. Like, oh, well, this is going to do great for these groups of folks. Like, is it, baby, have you really sat down and unpacked what this means and what this looked like? Um, and the biggest issue, too, is they assume these things work, but they also don't understand the value of mentorship. Right. They also don't understand the value of really seeing people from an intersectional cultural lens that really allows them to be seen and honored in their programs but they throw a fyi course in there and they assume or fye course in there and assume it's all gucci and that's just not the truth so i'm here if you want to have a deeper conversation (laughs) let me know i I do but i want to i want to have liz hopping that yes yes let us know liz mylene and then dr flipping (laughs) win Yeah, I, I do. I want to talk about uh, like the first part of the question, like what is the, the role of a of a gateway course? And um, and for me, I, I think that um, that 
my experience here, I, I did, I took science actually, um, uh, introductory bio course. And I think that was, um, also for my peers, like a make or break experience in terms of like what they would do next, if they would stay in science, um, or not. And, and I'm talking particularly about students from like underrepresented, um, backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, I think the biggest difference maker was that, um, it felt like, like a community for me, like the, the classroom. And, and so, um, it felt like a community. And I also felt like in terms of like just teaching, there was a lot of, um, diverse approaches to teaching that could cater to like every, most students' needs, right? Mm. Um, whether it's maybe, um, same lectures work for some people. Okay. <laughs> um, but also, uh, breaking into groups, right? And then getting to know other students by, by like breaking into groups and, and problem solving. And you don't even realize, I, I think I'm kind of, um, digressing a little bit, but I, I want to do a PhD, right? Because I want to learn how to think like a scientist. And I mm-hmm. think I started to do that in Brian's class and I didn't really realize it. And I'm kind of thinking about it now. Um, but that's really like what I was doing. And I think that's what Brian was teaching us how to do. Um, and as I, continued into like higher level classes um even though um for example like i didn't have i didn't graduate from our science degree um but i learned skills like just problem solving skills um that have helped me even um even now you know when i have to understand when trainers are training me right um at the graduate level um and i have to rely not on actual factual knowledge that I have, but actual like problem solving skills and interpersonal skills and things like that, that, that I, that I learned that I got first, uh, first got exposure to, um, I think really like in, in Brian's course. And that has helped me, mm-hmm. um, tremendously. I appreciate you bringing that lens in because you're talking about something that I have not seen a lot of faculty members do successfully. So I'm glad that you had great role models like Brian to really encourage that in you. But this lens of being able to just do the scientific method, you try stuff out and if it works great, if it doesn't, then you try something different, but also just getting to know people and behavior Mm -hmm. and see how you can then make some accommodations for how you teach, because you're right. Not everybody can sit there and listen to you talk for an hour and a half. Some of my classes are three hours long. Could you imagine Mm -hmm. having to just sit there and listen to anybody talk for three hours? I hated those classes, but you have to find different ways to approach the material um, that can be salient with people from diverse backgrounds and diverse learners, because even with background and culture and identity in mind, people just don't learn the same way. Some people are hands-on people, like you said, your your groups, your breakout sessions. But yeah, don't ever just try to talk to me for longer than 20 <laughs> minutes and think that without some type of engagement, at least let it right. be a discussion, right? And before we transition to, to Monica, I want everyone who's listening today to kind of keep that little tidbit that Liz Marlene stated about her interactions with, with Brian and how that led to further interactions into research, right? So I wouldn't be a good educational social science researcher if I didn't drop articles. And I just read this recent article that was really dope because it talked about how HBCUs actually funded, like they formatively make those connections, right? So Black students at HBCUs have more opportunities to engage in research than Black students at predominantly white institutions. And why that is, is because the culture supports it. 
So what Brian has been doing at, or did at the institution that um, does my name was that was actually foster that relationship, foster that opportunity. So what, what we want to do is kind of keep in mind when we talk about teaching instruction, that's not teaching instruction, but how do you engage students, undergraduate or graduate, well, primarily undergraduate students, to opportunities to expose them into things. So next, let's let's transition and, and get uh, Monica and Monica's opinion on this question. Amica, could I just yeah. make a quick response before we transition yeah. to Monica? Because you, it's your fault because you brought up HBC. <laughs> um, and I, I went to one. I'm a, I'm a Mohawk College graduate. And, um, and one of the things that I think I realized after leaving Mohawk, after graduating and perhaps well into my graduate career, you know, everything you just said is correct with the exposure to research. That is where I got that start, et cetera, et cetera. But it was actually some of the non- cognitive stuff, right? There was this expectation when you were on that campus that you were being cultivated to be a leader. To be completely honest with you, sometimes it was annoying because that, that's just not at 20, like that's not, I, you know, I'm not trying to like lay the path to be the next MLK or whatever, right? But but you understood that some of the, the conversations you had and the way you encouraged to do things in a particular way, it was, it was getting you ready for a time in your life when you were mature enough to see how those skills were necessary. And I think if, if when I reflect on my educational pathway and maybe the way I teach and, and think about how I teach my class now is that notion of teaching the whole student and not just, I'm a really good biochemist, so I'm just here to teach you biochemistry. I, I think that's when that kind of first got planted. And you, again, at 19, you don't fully get it, but you see it when you're 30, right? Mm. Um, and, and those are the, some of the intangibles that a lot of HBCUs bring. And I'm, I'm sure other campuses as well, but because of their very special history, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. like you really get, get that experience. Sorry, Monica, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did want to just say, uh, as a, a, a former HBCU grad myself, um, I, I learned early the dedication uh, of what uh, being a faculty member can be. And I learned it from my HBCU. I remember uh, at the end of the semester when all of our uh, funds were gone, we had no more money, no more cafeteria funds, no more tickets or anything like that. And I had an early morning psychology course. And the professor came in uh, with a, a basket of breakfast. And Damn. that made it seem like a big deal. But it did because he cared enough uh, to not only think about the fact that you get, that you understand that theory, but I know the cafeteria, you know, I know we low in funds and I want you to have breakfast. So, I mean, I, that example, but it says to what Brian says is that I was educated with the full perspective of who you can be the whole entire uh, human uh, self. And so at Jackson State now, I am able to work with my students and do research. Uh, matter of fact, my students are on uh, spring break right now. I had a student last night call me and ask some questions. She's doing some work, was doing some homework. And she said, I know you like uh, us to be concrete. I said, yes, I do. Uh, and so I think, I think uh, the opportunity to open up our students, to show them uh, what's possible, and then to extend uh, opportunities to do research. I learned research, uh, how to do research, and the importance of it when I was an undergrad. And so 
they talked to me that I could go to graduate school. I could do this. So I think um, when we're talking about teaching and instructions, I, I don't think we forget about mentoring. I don't think we forget about the importance of the one-to-one -one interaction uh, that happens with you and your uh, with your students. And that can happen online. I I've been able to do it online and it can be face-to-face, -face, but I think uh, that that one-to-one, -one, that sense of belonging, that self-efficacy, letting our students know that they can um, that they have the ability uh, to do what they need to do to move forward um, is something that we can work on. And and just for people to know before I let you, I'm sorry, Lee, you well, we do, we, it wasn't that we just automatically talk about HBCUs on purpose. Like, I promise you, like, we, I didn't attend HBCU, uh, Lee didn't attend HBCU. It just so happens that the research supports that, you know, this is what, this is what the research says, right? It says all these things and we want to highlight it to you. That does not mean that we don't think you should go to a predominantly white institution or another type of institution. We're just saying that based on the research, this is what you get. So you you see these two tenured professors on this podcast today. I ain't tenured. Mm -hmm. And the only commonality between, between the tenured and the not tenured is they went to this HBCU. So I'm just going to leave it at that. And I'm going to go ahead and let Lisa say something that she was about to say. <laughs> <clears throat> no, it's just that I think the thing that I'm hearing, that's the biggest difference is your HBCU education allowed you to be seen as people and not student ID numbers. And often in my PWIs, I feel more like, you know, student 9,026,7843. Like I don't feel like I ever got to really be um, Leela, like a person, a full entity of who I am. So knowing that your teacher brought you bre breakfast, I was like, what breakfast? <laughs> My teachers bought me problems. That's all they brought me. They never, they, I never, ever could imagine. PWIs, because teaching at a PWI, you become that person. Mm -hmm. You become that person that reaches, you know, it's, you know, you have one teacher, I'm not saying, you know, one teacher of color. You mm -hmm. that uh, person who kind of wraps your arms around. The students flock to you. They come to yeah. you. They want that experience. And so I would have brought you breakfast, Lita. <laughs> Please. You can, you can bring it to me now. I have the flu. I don't feel good. I'm hungry. <laughs> Thank you. And I do. And I still do uh, send, you know, that type of thing with my students just because not, uh, not, it, it it brings them closer to me. They know I care. They know, uh, uh, and I still know that they're, uh, their money for school runs out in March. Okay. In six more weeks. So, mm. Mm -hmm. figure it out, you know. So, that's that, yeah. that whole thing that you're trying to do. And you know what happens is, is we're going to be on this first question the whole episode, but that's fine because that means that that's where we needed to be. <laughs> but, I've seen what you're talking about be punished in PWIs because the stuff you're referring to is stuff that I get talked to about pretty often from, and honestly, it's actually supported with my chair and my dean. They be seeing it for my ass when I'm there, but it's other faculty members that I've noticed that I get lots of little, but why would you do that? Or if you keep doing this, they're going to expect that from you. I'm like, shouldn't they expect? someone to see them as a person who has needs outside of whatever it is they're here to do. But it's something that I've gotten a lot of critical feedback from my white male peers more often and my white female peers, because they see it as 
it's, it's me doing too much. But the real issue is they notice the change it has in my students and they don't want to be held to that same standard because they know that they're not going to tr even try to live up to any of that. So it's not necessarily about me, but it's rather about what me, your professor, what you, what you, Brian, what you, Emeka, what you bring in as faculty members into the space that they know that they're not willing to do. Um, and some of that comes out of this place of, well, no one ever did it for me. It's that same rhetoric where you hear, oh, well, no one paid my student loan, so why should we get rid of them now? I'm like, well, you sound bitter. You should go see somebody about that. But it, it's really just this idea of you can change how we show up for people in these institutions of white supremacy. And if taking a moment to see people as human who have needs, who have um, all these complex things going on is at the forefront of how you engage with them in the classroom, I prefer that. I don't have to get through every lecture as long as I get through to somebody while I'm lecturing. So that's the stuff that should be at the forefront. Honestly, Emeka, that was the final thought. So we're going to skip that at the end and we're going to turn it back over to Liz Miley. <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to be quick about it. Um, I just kind of want to talk about uh, diversifying the, the way that we deliver instruction and um, how that played a big role in, in my experience um, in, in introductory bio. Um, for me, I think like culturally, uh, I think like storytelling is actually like, a, you know, it's, it's important um, for me culturally and the way that um, I, the way that when Brian Wood quote unquote lecture, um, I think he would do it for, as, uh, as if you were telling a story. And I think that, um, that engaged me so much. And the storytelling plus, um, like telling science as a story plus, um, just the community building that, that would happen, um, in the classroom. I think that, um, that is also something that I seek in my labs now when I choose, <laughs> when I, when I go on to choose my rotations, because when you, you do these experiments, right? And and you write a paper. And when you write a paper, you are you're telling a story, right? So that storytelling, right? Plus, um, plus wanting to find community in my lab. I think um, that I mean, and it has. It makes a big difference in terms of like the way that I will, um, the way that my graduate experience will go. Um, that's my last tip. <laughs> oh. No, I appreciate that. That really helps to really round it out. And, and because we talked about how this doesn't just have to solely happen in the in-person space, how have you seen um, teaching and instruction work well or work poorly in the digital space, especially since we all got sent home, right? For about, what was that, a year we were all put on Zoom? Yeah. Before we were allowed to go back on campus. Honestly, you can leave me on Zoom. I like it there. I prefer not leaving my house. Y'all can send me home any day. <laughs> but have you seen the effects and the role of digital learning for students and long-term effect on the institution as a whole? I think Let's that uh, things that didn't work were just that don't work you're just exacerbated and and i think a lot of people's classrooms collapse to be honest um and <laughs> the learning the like the learning that only works for few now it just didn't didn't work for anyone um but that was i think that was my experience because i my last semester of undergrad actually 
um, was when the pandemic started. And um, to be really honest, uh, a lot of instructors um, just kind of gave up, especially, I mean, granted, like older instructors too, aside from having their like traditional methods, um, they also can't work theology. <laughs> so that um. was, like, that, there was no hope <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> um, but it didn't work at all. And to be honest, that semester, I can't say I, I learned much. Um, that was just my experience. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Brian, what about you? How did you see digital learning really influence all of this? Well, I, I think there's actually two questions embedded in your question because you, you, you talked about digital learning, but you really prefaced it by talking about having to switch to digital learning because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple points with that that I, I would love for people who are listening to this to really think about. Um, one is, you know, when March 2020 occurred, March 13th, 14th, whatever day it was, we all sort of had to make that switch, right? I, I trust that people recognize that when the gyms were closed and the sports teams had to stop playing and the, the research labs had to be padlocked, the one thing we couldn't stop doing was teaching classes. Right, that, that was the one function right. of the university that could not just grind to a halt. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to me, you know, just because my line of work is, is researching equity in teaching and learning and, and doing faculty development around that. It was pretty amazing to me that something that we have to almost scratch and claw and beg to gain primacy in the higher education space, it took a pandemic for people to sort of realize like that's the one part of the institutional function that we can't abscond, right? And, and there, were, there were things and conversations that were coming up about ways to engage students you know, with a digital platform that quite frankly, Centers for Teaching and Learning were trying to, to make the case for for decades, right? And I, I, I worry a little bit, to be honest with you, that we haven't fully learned the lessons during that time period and we are in this sort of return back to normal mindset where mm-hmm. you know whatever pre-March 2020 was that's what we're trying to get back to and right. we haven't fully kind of uh understood what was being messaged to us about what teaching the role teaching should be playing in uh, a higher education experience the other thing I would say real quick um and this is with all due respect to, to my wonderful colleagues who do online teaching and who teach on Zoom well before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my wife is a first grade teacher, right? Um, and we have daily conversations about how far behind her kids are. And, and this is not just her, right? This is national data set. And I know a lot of it is at a K-12 level, but you know, anecdotally, my colleagues in, in college are seeing kind of similar things are things that you, you sort of didn't, have, didn't see at the sophomore level or the first year level. You don't see and you're like, what is going on? And so the amount of learning loss that occurred in this sort of makeshift school we were going through, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I worry about the consequences of that for years to come. That's, you know, point number one to that. And then point number two, I, and again, I'm reflecting my bias. I'm an in-person kind of person. I love my class. I love being there. I'm a mm-hmm. lover of thespian and theater and just being you know, the griot tradition like what Liz talked about storytelling so that's kind of where my heart and soul is and I'm not here to say that that's the way things should be and there should be no online but whatever was lost from all of us having to all migrate to zoom in mass I, I don't know if you fully 
codify the degree of that loss. And my hope is that we, if we take some time to kind of reflect, not just on, you know, it's easier to have some in-person data you can monitor, cheating or whatever, whatever, but there, there's something about that physical space, the intangibles and the, the spirit mm-hmm. and the energy that you create in that, that we don't do a good job in my opinion of quantifying or really examining fully because it's, it's, it's squishy and it's, it's uh, you know, it's not, it's not quantitative. It's not, it doesn't fit in a regression model. It's just, you know, but those of us who come from that, that background, that history is in you and you know it, right? And you know, you don't get that looking at 50 mm-hmm. faces on a Zoom screen, right? And maybe it's, it's a challenge for some of us who do come from that tradition to mm-hmm. make a better case for why that tradition matters in inclusive classrooms. Now, I hope all that makes sense because you Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you ask all these deep questions that give me like five minutes to respond. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> nah, that that's actually so that that's actually a really good response. So, so I teach online. I teach fully online, and I teach quantitative research online. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that it's hard to teach somebody a regression model online, and then you know, there's there's only so many resources you can give to somebody. There's only so many YouTube's and books and something that you can try to have somebody understand what a regression is or factor analysis is that it's different when you sit down with somebody and you 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 give them something to play with right and so i'm i'm a proponent of, i'm a proponent of education but i understand like what you just said there are inequities in terms of how people learn and also how people are exposed and get to and are able to access education that was exacerbated within that pandemic so that's why we saw kids at taco bell using the wi-fi because they don't have wi-fi at home <laughs> Right. So it, it, it becomes this thing like, how do I have access to education if I don't have Wi-Fi at home? But I never had Wi-Fi to begin with. So I can't just go to the library. The library is too far. So what's the biggest thing? Taco Bell. Right. So Taco, now go, Taco Bell has Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yes. Taco Bell has Wi-Fi. Taco Bell has Wi-Fi. Yeah. It's like Taco Bell. And it, it, it's the craziest thing is that the kids went to the Taco Bell because the Taco Bell would let them use their Wi-Fi because no other restaurant would. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So then it, then it yeah, becomes yeah. this 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 mm-hmm. inequity thing about who has the right to have access to education, right? And mm-hmm. and this, this is this is kind of like tangential, but I'm a proponent. And I'll be first to tell you, like I don't want everybody. I don't want all student loans to be paid back. And I'm gonna tell you real quick why. Because if all student loans are paid back, universities and colleges are gonna raise their their costs astronomically because they're gonna the federal government is gonna pay for it which means that people who traditionally can't afford education, primarily black folk, are gonna have these obscene amounts of money to pay. And then who's gonna pay it off? Who says they're gonna do it again, right? So it's just gonna trigger this, this, this wave of increasing cost of education. And then low income people are gonna be hit with it the worst. So that's why I, when, you, when you say what you said, it, it, like it, it hits on so many levels, right? It hits on so many levels. Who has, who has the time, who has the resources to actually engage in online learning if I, you know, if I can't afford a laptop, if I can't afford high-speed internet, right? And then it kind of goes back into education in terms of who can afford the books, right? A $5 yeah. book, $350, $350 book, right? And what does that really mean? And I don't want to take too much time. And, you know, I, I feel like you hit on so many things. And again, we have like a very finite amount of time to talk about it. But I definitely want to hear from Monica. And, and share some of your wisdom on this question. So I, I think it's an interesting when we talk about digital education. You know, the digital divide was way before, uh, um, you know, the pandemic. We were talking about the inequity 
uh, digital, you know, being having access to internet, et cetera. Um, but I also know that DFWI rates uh, were existent uh, in our face-to-face courses as with our online. And so I sometimes, you know, think our, um, when, when we're talking about digital education in our courses, we have to also understand that your instructors, uh, you know, we, we have to provide more faculty development. We have to provide uh, better opportunities for people to understand the process of teaching online. And um, I have, you know, I do both. Uh, and I teach online now, and we have some really dedicated professors who work to make sure uh, that they storytell. You know, they, they do storytelling. So, you know, uh, and and you know they can do it because we watch television, and television is storytelling. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, when we put things in the boxes and say this and that, I think both uh, uh, online education, uh, digital education for our students, uh, they had a hard time, but when I first started, I had uh, online dancing contests. I did things to bring my students in because they were more afraid than the faculty was. And so when we talk about this, we have to understand faculty development or working with teachers. The same thing with your face-to-face. You have some face-to-face classes that students go, oh man, I got so-and-so. I just do not go. Every I'm time. Class. Oh, <laughs> Every oh. time. Uh, so I think, uh, I, I think we have faculty development. We have, uh, we have students who are going to do better at digital education than they are going to do uh, in face-to-face. We have opportunities. I think sometimes that the digital education has to remain because you have uh, students who are non-traditional, students who do better. Uh, and so I think we have to leave those avenues open and we have to figure out ways to make them better, more engaging, uh, train our faculty. Uh, but then we also need to do that to, uh, uh, to our face-to-face instructors. I know an instructor who uses the same yellow pad he has used for 20 years. Mm-mm. Asked, uh, you know, are you going to put something on your learning management system? I've used this for 20 years. My students have graduated. I'm not doing anything else. So Uh I think uh, the development and working with our faculty, no matter what modality uh, they are teaching or or using, is the way we uh, help our students Uh ending that. And, you know, that actually kind of gets into our our kind of like, kind of our, our next next phase. Right? I feel like we don't talk about the problem enough. We don't talk about it like a dog. Okay, so so now how do we provide solutions, right? So so first thing I want I'm kind of think about is like poorly designed gateway gateway courses um, that can inhibit effective, you know, student out, so student progress. How do we switch that? How do we make uh, better gateway courses? And then how do we kind of integrate and connect points across faculty courses? So this is like a two part question. And then what does that look like in terms of student success? So think so to kind of make this like a succinct question. Um, and then Liz and Marlene, you can kind of jump in this too. Uh, what are good gateway courses? What do what do good gateway courses have? Right. That's the first part. And the second part is um, how can we like integrate and connect points across faculty courses? So it's not just gateway courses, but other courses in the sequence that kind of help with student success and then kind of encompasses it in like an alternative model. Is it a hybrid? Is it online? Is it uh, 
just in person or is it just like we have dope, you know, people like Brian that are just up there giving like storytelling in the form of biochemistry? Because believe me, here in your class makes me want to go back to my undergrad class and not taking my intro to bio course because my intro to bio course is the reason why I'm not a pharmacy major anymore, right? It was because mm-hmm. I really felt like I wasn't good at science anymore, right? And maybe it wasn't the person, maybe it, or maybe it wasn't me, maybe it was how I learned you know, entering my introductory bio course. So, first of all, I think when you talk about gateway courses, uh, you know, that's a conversation, and you can have a separate uh, podcast session on gateway courses. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, that is, you know, I also think with our gateway courses, um, there has to be a community, I believe. Uh, with our uh, gateway courses, with our, um, I have uh, institutions who have developed um, several types of learning communities and opportunities. But I think from the very beginning, I think uh, Brian said this initially, even before you step in your class, um, you have to have an idea of what your goal and objective is for your students. Uh, and then you have to, uh, you know, I think some of our gateway instructors, um, and sometimes we have adjuncts teaching our gateway courses. And so we don't provide them with the, what they need um, to get moving. So I think the first thing we have to do is to set up what is this gateway class? What is this course supposed to do? Who are my students? What do I need to give them? What's the outcome? Uh, and then uh, you can go about uh, uh, designing if you have that if you have that uh, opportunity. Sometimes you don't have, you know, you are teaching the course and you have to teach uh, what you are given. And I think that also is a, a tough spot for some of our, our faculty to be, especially our uh, contingent faculty. And we don't often talk about them. We haven't talked about them much here, um, but we do know that at, especially at our larger uh, institutions, I'm not about to get into trouble here uh, because <laughs> I lived, and I lived as a teaching assistant. I was a teaching assistant uh, through my master's and doctorate program. Um, but was was I really prepared to teach that intro intro class? Um, and so, and, and the teaching that I did, uh, was it appropriate enough to make sure that my students were prepared to go to that next course and to work effectively? Hmm. I don't know. So I'm saying the the preparation to keep a gateway course, um, we don't talk about it enough. Uh, we do that, uh, here's a plug for my organization. We do uh, gateways to completion. We focus completely on the gateway course. And what we find is we have not done enough preparation uh, with our faculty uh, to teach the gateway course. Mm-hmm. Brian, mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Not just, not just, not just, just now, but even before when you, you talked about faculty development and and that's necessary regardless of the modality. What what I would say simply, Emeka, is that a good gateway course has a gate that everybody can open. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that that's to me that to me kind of encapsulate the philosophy how you think about it. Right. If it's padlocked, if it's a you know um, a number code, and if it's some special trick that needs to happen in order to to circum to navigate this course, 
then that's what brings up all the inequities that we've been talking about to this point, right? And so, so the question then becomes, how do you as a faculty member design a gateway course that is facilitated, that has an open gate, that, has, that is accessible by whoever walks into that room? And to build on Monica's point a little bit is, you can't just keep assuming that subject matter expertise is all you need to be effective in a classroom. Absolutely. In fact, at the intro level, that is particularly the time when subject matter expertise is a little bit more of your enemy than your friend because you have the curse of knowledge and you kind of don't, you don't even remember the, like the mini steps you took before you get to that point of expertise. And the, the, the phrase I like to use with my audiences is intro bio, intro chem, intro phys. It's really more about the intro than the bio. Right. If you if you have a good understanding of, of what that uh they're not frozen in my screen, but um if you have a good understanding of what goes into that transition process for the students, and if you are able to enact social and behavioral changes that anticipate that and make students feel like this is a place where they can thrive, mm -hmm. that is the process by which you create a gate that everybody can open. That, that's what a good gateway course looks like. So I'll get off my soapbox and toss it to Liz. So I, I think um, we should redefine also what student success means because it mm -hmm. doesn't mean the same thing for every student. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back to PhD just because um, that's where I'm heading and that's kind of the mindset that, that I'm in. But um, like I said, like, for me, like a PhD is not about having this immeasurable knowledge base. It's about learning how to think about science better. And um, when when I think about a good gateway course, um, for some students, success is yes, like I have this this amazing fundamental um, knowledge about um, I don't know. <laughs> DNA, RNA, protein, all this, um, and that's great. Um, but I think also, like for me, what made me feel like I was a successful student um, in in my like intro bio course was was skills that I gained that I that I use like to this day. But like I said, like um, learning how to work with people because you're never gonna stop working with people, especially if you stay in academia. Mm -hmm. It's everything is a big group project. Like you write a paper, and okay, you might be the first author, but like you're not the only author probably, you know, mm -hmm. like you have to, people are constantly training you, you're constantly training other people, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and those are, like I said, those are things that, that I learned. Um, it's just skills, like actually being like a functional person in, in society and you can apply that to your, um, to like your workspace, like in academia. And um, I think, and that's what made it successful. Like I said, like, for example, for me, like I did not, Yes, I, 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 like I said, I didn't have, I didn't graduate with a neuroscience degree, but I, I actually got a BA in bio. And so the amount of hard science courses that I was required to take was less than someone of maybe like a biochem major, for example. Um, and you, that made me like graduating with a BA. I, at first I thought, wow, like I am underprepared. I don't have this knowledge base like other students have like in my prep program or like moving on when I like start grad school. But I, again, like I, I'm, I learned how to 
how to think about things. I learned how to problem solve. I learned, and these are all these skills that, um, like, I know that I, first of all, like, just given my identities, I already know that it's not, I'm not on the same playing field as a lot of my peers anyway, you know? And I have, I feel like I have the tools though to, to still like find success and still, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like to still like find success. And like, that's kind of goes back to what I said about like student success means, it means different things for different students. And so part of having what makes a gateway class or gateway course, um, a good one is that, um, you can achieve what success means to you, regardless of, regardless of what it means. Right. And, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's my tidbit <laughs> on that. No, I think that's a really good piece. And I, I want to echo what you just said real quick, um, before I, before we close out is that, um, the skills sometimes are more important than the content. You can, you can learn more content, but it's, it's harder to learn a skill when you're trying to do it at the same time. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that's important for our listeners to kind of listen to is it's about the skill set. So when you have a professor like Brian, or we have a professor like Monica, or a professor like Leela, or myself, and we're telling you, we're helping you build skill sets, please listen, because those skill sets are the things that you're going to use for the rest of your life. The content's going to change. You're always going to have to learn new information, but the skill set is always going to be the same in how you acquire that information. And for those of you who are faculty on the call today, I really encourage you to hear how we said about different modalities, stretching yourself, learning that even if you've been teacher for 15, 20 years or however two, whatever it many years, you can always learn how to be a more and, and a, more, a better and more effective educator because mm-hmm. people change and we're dealing with different people. We're dealing with different times. We're dealing with a whole new group of students who were at home for a whole two years. And what does that mean and how you engage with them? So I definitely want to take the, the time to say thank you all to our, our great guests today for Dr. Brian New, New, Newsberry, uh, as well as, um, Sorry, I said called you Dewsbury, Dr. Dewsbury, and then Liz Mylene Ramos, future PhD, and Dr. Monica Flipper Wynn. I want to put, put, put your all in Dr. Leela Ethel Ellis Nelson. Sadi, I want to put all your accolades on this call today because I need people to understand the expertise that we heard today. <laughs> and with that, we want to just end out on this, this wonderful episode, and we'll see y'all next time. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, check out others in in this six-episode special series to hear from innovative leaders in the post-secondary space on how they are addressing gaps in equity in higher education. And a special thank you to Lila and Emeka for giving us space on their platform to share these stories and highlight the important work our partners are doing. This project is supported by Catalyst Ed, Tides, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thanks for listening.